Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Welcome back. I've said before that we are trying to keep pace with Come Follow Me. So this week, we'll be walking through Mosiah 4 through 6, which will bring us to the end of King Benjamin's speech. And we'll start to transition into the post-Benjamin era. In this episode, though, we'll be talking about Mosiah 4. Just to remind you of how far we've come with Benjamin. Mosiah 2 is Benjamin's dive into his ethic of infinite indebtedness to God and infinite service to each other and to God. In Mosiah 3, Benjamin quotes the angel's message of glad tidings of great joy, which foretells the birth, ministry, suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ. The angel also teaches of the need to approach this life and the Lord with childlike submissiveness, as well as the cost of not realizing the need that we naturally have of salvation. Remember that justice, according to the angel, is not an issue of punishment, but an issue of consequence, and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the only thing impactful enough to absorb and heal the consequences of mortality. So with that reminder, we begin in chapter 4 with verses 1 through 3 and the reaction of the people to the words of the angel. The people, it seems, see their natural state clearly, as words of angels tend to do, The words of this angel have parted the veil of ignorance, and the people cry out, saying, Oh, have mercy and apply the atoning blood of Christ, that we may receive forgiveness of our sins and our hearts may be purified. For we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who created the children of men. Mormon goes on to describe what happens as a result of this group prayer. He says that after they had spoken these words, The Spirit of the Lord came upon them, and they were filled with joy, having received a remission of their sins, and having peace of conscience, because of the exceeding faith which they had in Jesus Christ, who should come according to the words which King Benjamin had spoken unto them. That's a pretty remarkable event. We don't often think of faith, repentance, and forgiveness as a communal experience, but maybe we should a little bit more. There isn't one saving ordinance of the gospel that I can think of that can be experienced in isolation. It takes a community to administer the gospel. No doubt we all have very deep and personal experiences with the atonement of Jesus Christ, but it is as a part of a larger body of Christ. A hand without a body is lifeless, and maybe that's how we should think about our participation in the gospel. If we aren't careful... We could run into an obstacle while trying to understand Benjamin's teachings in this chapter. We have to understand that there's a fundamental contradiction in how we see the world in the modern West and how Benjamin sees the world. That contradiction has to do with this idea called individualism. To put this idea simply, individualism places the individual at the center and the community on the periphery. In other words, in individualism... We are first and foremost individuals, and only secondly, we're members of a community. Now, many of you might say, well, isn't that obvious? 
Well, that depends on when and where you were born and what culture you were raised in. Many cultures in the world, even today, and especially throughout history, think about the community as primary and individuals as components of that community. For example, I used to live in Hawaii, and it was not uncommon for me to meet an older Hawaiian person, and the first thing they would ask me was who my family was. If they knew my family, they figured they could know me. If we go into Mosiah 4 thinking that Benjamin is only talking about an internal, individual conversion or faith in Jesus Christ, we might very well miss what he intended his people to understand. In the next section, verses 4 through 8, Benjamin responds to the people's reaction, and frankly, it doesn't seem like Benjamin thinks the people are finished in their conversion. No doubt he's pleased at the faith of the people and their experience with Jesus Christ, but he knows that it's not just about one experience. Similar to the beginning of his speech in chapter 2, he wants his people to open their ears and hear and their minds and understand. He then uses this word, if. If the knowledge of the goodness of God has awakened you to a sense of your nothingness. If you have come to the knowledge of the goodness of God. Then, he seems to say, you understand that your only hope is in Jesus Christ and his atonement which was prepared for the foundation of the world for all mankind. The atonement was prepared, anticipating the fall and all the fallen. It is the only hope. And in verses 9 through 15, we get the therefore. So we had the if, and now we get the therefore. If you know the goodness of God, therefore, believe in God. Believe that he is, and that he created all things, both in heaven and in earth. Believe that he has all wisdom and all power, both in heaven and earth. Believe that man doth not comprehend all the things which the Lord can comprehend. And again, believe that ye must repent of your sins and forsake them and humble yourself before God. And ask in the sincerity of heart that he would forgive you. Now, if you believe all these things, see that ye do them. These verses might seem out of place to us. Didn't they just have an incredible group conversion experience? Why is he using this word if so many times? Doesn't he believe them that their experience is genuine? I think he does believe them, but they have just tasted of the love of God, he says. And that's not enough. You have to do it. You have to wake up in the morning and put it into action every single day. The scriptures can be misleading if we don't remember that we are only getting the short of the story. We get these dramatic moments of conversion, but we sometimes miss the build-up or the day-to-day -day life of discipleship that must follow. If we aren't careful, we can think that we've never had a conversion experience because it hasn't been big and dramatic, when true conversion is in putting that belief into action day in and day out. Benjamin knows this, and his primary concern is one of retention. Retain in remembrance the greatness of God in your own nothingness, calling on the name of the Lord daily. He says that if you can remember, that's an important word, think of the sacrament, if you can remember the undeserved grace that God offers to us, then we can always rejoice and be filled with the love of God and always retain a remission of our sins. 
This all sounds very sacramental, doesn't it? That life, he says, produces fruits. Fruits like love, care for one another, peace, just living, parents caring for and teaching their children to resist temptation and love and serve one another. Whenever we get a list of outcomes like this, it's an opportunity to take account of our families, communities, wards, nations, and the world in general. If these aren't the fruits that we are seeing, perhaps we are cultivating the wrong seeds. Benjamin wants his people to produce the fruits of conversion, of atonement, of the covenant. And he wants them to teach their children to produce those fruits so that this peace can be a lasting, multi-generational peace. And the way he's going to drive this point home is that he's going to talk about beggars. So we see this talk in verses 16 through 30. Rhetorically, Benjamin asks his people, are we not all beggars? But let's flip that question into a statement, a foundational assertion that Benjamin feels needs to be at the heart of the community going forward. We are all beggars. We are infinitely in debt to and dependent on God. We are all beggars. That immediately flattens whatever illusions we have built up about social hierarchies or status. So that's the reality that Benjamin wants his people to have rooted deep down into their souls. But on top of that reality, we are born into and perpetuate a world of artificial separations but with very real-life consequences. Wealth, nationalities, borders, races, these things have real consequences in our lives, but they aren't genuine reflections of our relationship to God or each other. Two of the primary divisions that get passed on from generation to generation, these artificial separations, are what Benjamin calls the rich, or those who have, and the poor, or those who have not. According to Benjamin's measures of the situation, these two groups are both beggars and therefore are equal, but don't both experience the same consequences as a result of their inherited or manufactured inequality. And right off the bat, it's clear that the rich have a longer road back than the poor do to knowing themselves and others as they really are, as beggars who are utterly dependent on God's grace. The rich, those who have, tend to believe in their wealth and in the poverty of others. Speaking to the rich, Benjamin says that they are under obligation to succor or relieve the suffering of others. But the justification comes. Quote, Perhaps thou shalt say, The man has brought upon himself his misery. Therefore, I will stay my hand, and will not give him of my food, nor impart unto him of my substance, that he may not suffer, for his punishments are just. Because they don't know themselves as beggars, but as deserving of their wealth, either by their industry or their innate superiority, something that we know the Nephites struggle with, the rich stand condemned because they interpret the situation of others through that same distorted lens. It's almost to say, I'm justified in my wealth based on who I am. So the circumstances of others must be the just result of who they are. Seeing the circumstances of others as accidental, resulting from the conditions of mortality, from chance, from time, from inheritance, 
that are ultimately outside of all of our control is a dangerous prospect for those whose identity is based on what they have because it means that their condition may also be the result of mortality. That may cause them to realize then that they are also beggars and their perishable wealth is not only powerless to change that fact, but it's not even theirs. And they are therefore completely unjustified in withholding their substance from those who have not. Are you still with me? Okay. Adam Miller, when he wrote about this chapter for the Mormon Theology Seminar, made the point that Benjamin wants the rich people of his society to realize that the Christian life is not about assuming the cause of other people's suffering or even of your own success. It's about accepting the responsibility for relieving the suffering of others. Next, Benjamin moves to the poor. The poor, like the rich, are also beggars. But their primary concern is to survive the day. They know that their situation is out of their control. A hungry belly today makes saving for the future an absurd exercise. Not only that, a hungry belly makes trying to determine the cause of that hunger a secondary consideration. So while the rich are invested in a world where people get what they deserve, the poor are compelled to live in a world where they struggle just to have what they need. So the poor start off knowing themselves as beggars, as they really are. Because of this, Benjamin doesn't talk about the poor with the same type of condemnation that he speaks about the rich in his society. But there is a danger to the poor. It's that they get confused about what they really need and what they don't need. Scarcity can help us focus on what matters, but it can also create a desperate desire to obtain wealth what Benjamin calls covetousness. So if the poor can manage to say in their hearts, not with their lips, Benjamin isn't concerned about more public performances. If they can manage to say in their hearts deep down that they would give if they have, then they will see themselves as beggars and not come under condemnation. Is any of this practical to us? I mean, In any discussion of the modern economy, quoting Benjamin would at best be considered naive, and at worst be considered offensive, especially since Benjamin doesn't seem to be very interested in entertaining our I-earned-what-I-have justifications. But maybe Benjamin isn't actually talking about economic policies of a just society. If you're Benjamin, you can't go from being critical of people who put too much stock in having or not having possessions, and then make your whole speech about determining who gets what. That's not what he's trying to do. His speech is not about the symptoms of mortality, however real their impact may be, but addressing the very cause of mortality. Children of Adam inherit the fall. That's all of us. Beggars. Children of Christ inherit the resurrection. That's where Benjamin will go next in chapter 5. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at soundcloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. 
Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Mm-hmm.